unless you were under a rock hiding this week, you know that there was a bombing in Boston, uh, something that turned that city upside down and, and uh, really turned our country upside down. I think there was a lot of fear. And one of the discussions early on that happened was, is this a domestic event, a terrorism of a domestic sort, or is this a foreign terrorism coming in? And people want to know, is this us fracturing from the middle or something coming from outside? When a crisis happens, we ask those sorts of questions. You know, there are lots of, of examples of groups, organizations, fracturing from the inside out. Again, I'm a Cubs fan. I know what it's like to see an organization fall apart from the inside out. I've seen many water coolers destroyed and fistfights in the dugout. I mean, this is sort of just what it's like. some point, you can follow a sports team and go, that team is falling apart. Or maybe it's... Uh, you know, an example of, uh, of a tower. You know, my kids, because we have little ones, again, they're constantly building towers with Olivia. And, you know, it's interesting to see a lot of times they'll take blocks and build towers. And before the last block ever gets on the top, something will happen in the very middle of the structure and it'll just completely come toppling down. When a crisis happens in our lives, is it something that happens from the inside out or the outside in? The early church serves... At this point in Acts chapter 6, the early church understood the risk of an internal fracture. They're about to fall apart from the inside out. In Acts chapter 6, they were teetering on the brink of division, and the early church risked this fracture. And the early church had already weathered one crisis. We remember a few chapters ago with Ananias and Sapphira, and now they risk fracturing from within. So we're, we're in the series on the book of Acts, and, and we've been in this, uh, this series for 13 or 14 weeks. And so if, if you haven't been with us, let me just bring you up to speed on what's happened in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about what happens to the early church after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven, and he commissions the early church to go make more followers, people to embrace the forgiveness of Christ and seek after him. And the Holy Spirit comes in this, this really cool event in Acts, and the church begins to grow, and, and there's this external pressure and danger. All of a sudden, the church begins to grow, and the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish people said, we don't like this. You can't speak about Jesus anymore. In fact, we'll threaten your life, and we'll throw you in jail. The apostles rejoiced in the suffering. But today what we're going to see is that there's a risk of an internal crisis within the church that threatens to destroy the early church from the inside out. The unity of the church was at stake without which the church couldn't accomplish her mission. So, and at this very moment, there was a crisis. That's what I want to talk about first today is this crisis. This crisis in the early church. Now, you have to understand that in the early church, was an, it's an interesting situation because they didn't have a welfare system in their society. But Jewish law had sort of a welfare system built in. If you were a widow and had no one to care for you, you were taken care of by your family. That was expected. And so you have to also understand at this time, it was very common for Jews living outside of Israel— to return home as they got older and prepared to die. So if you were a Jew that had lived outside of Israel, you were called a, a Grecian Jew. 
You, you lived in the Greek world, which was more than just Greece today. It was this whole Greek world that the Romans had eventually taken over. They were from all over and they would return home because they wanted to die in the Holy Land and be buried in the Holy Land. And so when they would come home to Israel, any extended family they had, if, 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 if a husband would die and, and left a widow, any extended family would take care of this widow. But there was a problem because in, in first century Israel, if you became a Christian, your family turned their backs on you. They called you an apostate. They threw you out. They didn't pay attention to you anymore. They, they acted as if you were dead. And so these widows in the early church, both from all over or from the Hebraic ones that lived right there, they needed someone to care for them. And so what the early church did is they stepped up. It's beautiful. They became a family. And so we had these two groups of widows in the early church, neither of whom had extended family. One group spoke mostly the, their probably Greek or their home their language of their, their land they were raised in or their trade language, which was Greek. And then you had this other group of people that spoke Aramaic, that had been raised in Israel and spoke Aramaic. And so these two were very distinct groups. There were Hebrew Jews, it's kind of redundant, but they were raised in Israel. There were Grecian Jews from all over the world. And this conflict arose, as you can only imagine. It, I think it started over these language differences probably, but the Grecian Jews had adopted Greek culture, and many Jews that had lived in first century Israel viewed Grecian Jews as traitors or compromisers. They had adopted Greek culture. The Pharisees viewed them as second-class citizens. And so even in the early church, because of these differences, discrimination was taking place. The Hebrew widows got their first pick of the food, and what was left over, if any, went to the Grecian Jews. And you have to understand that this created a situation of potential disaster in the early church. Forget the mission. <laughs> We're worried about our bellies. Was there a church split going to happen? Did we about potentially see the first Grecian Jewish Christian church of Jerusalem, <laughs> you know, and the second <laughs> Grecian Jewish church of, of Israel in Jerusalem? I mean, like, you can just see this thing happening. It's just ready. It's ready to explode into the two churches. You know, Satan works in the little things, doesn't he? I mean, I believe in Satan. He's alive and active. But he works in subtle ways. We're used to Satan working in ways that we think, oh, it's going to be some huge manifestation and scare us all to death. Satan works in subtle ways. He wants us to destroy each other. So he plants little seeds of splinter. Because the church has been breaking into Satan's kingdom. The church has been bringing God's kingdom to this world and breaking into Satan's territory, and he doesn't like it. Kent Hughes talks about uh, a church in Dallas years ago. The, the, the church in Dallas had a major split, and they had two factions, two equal factions, vying for control of the church's property. And so eventually this dispute landed them in court. One group sued the other. And of course, the courts looked at this and go, we don't know what to do with this. And they referred it to their denominational leaders. And so the denominational leaders said, okay, we're going to figure out what's going on here. So they started an investigation and they got to the bottom of where it all started. They were at a, it started at a potluck. One of the elders was given a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. 
that was the root. You see, Satan works in the little things. He works in our pride. He works in ridiculous things. He works in our hearts to create division. Have you ever noticed this? How easy is it for you to get offended? Someone will do something to you intentionally or not, and it just kind of sits like a splinter under the skin and just festers and festers. It's the little things. In Acts chapter 6, the Christians are fighting and the church is about to become fractured, ineffective, or at the very least, distracted from their purpose. So what's the solution to this crisis? This solution is pure genius. I absolutely love what the apostles do in Acts chapter 6 for this solution. Let's look at it together. The apostles took the problem seriously. They got together and proposed a solution. And I want you to notice a few things about the way the apostles handled this. First of all, they addressed the crisis with focused leadership. They addressed the crisis with focused leadership. You see, ministry is a big job. The mission of the church is huge. And, and so it can't just be the apostles only that are doing ministry. It can't be just the elders of Waukee Community Church that are doing ministry. It takes focused leadership to get everyone on board. And there are roles for everyone. The, under, the apostles understood that their job was to teach the word and to pray. Look at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They understood there's a priority to the word of God. The study of the, what is the, what is the word of God? What is the ministry of the word? Well, one, it's the study of the word. The church needs its leaders, the church needs their leaders to know the word of God. You want your leaders to be immersed and understand this. It's important. But the ministry of the word is also the teaching of the word to others. You have to know it to teach it. It's, teachers, it's teaching to both those who believe and to those who don't. Why? Because the Bible is, is the guide for life. The Bible is the book that we look at, that we follow for our daily life. You see, the world doesn't think about the Bible that way. They think it's a nice collection of stories or a nice truth or a nice thing that teaches us good things. But they don't look at it as a guide for our life. And the Bible is relevant today just as much as it was relevant 2,000 years ago. It speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. So the ministry of the word is vitally important. The apostles also say that they're supposed to give their attention to prayer in verse 4. With focused leadership, the disciples understand that they have a responsibility to pray for the church. Prayer is a direct line to God. We learn in, through the Bible that Jesus gave us, gives us a direct path to the Father. We get to pray directly to God because of Jesus and what he did for us. It's powerful and effective. Prayer is a reminder of who's in charge. It's not us, it's God. I want our leaders at Waukee Community Church to be doing that. To be immersed in the word, to be teaching the word, to be immersed and saturated in prayer. Now, listen, let's be honest. Verse two, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. That kind of sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? But that's not the way the apostles intended it. We think, well, shouldn't leaders be willing to do anything? I, I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. Put that up there, Laura. 
It says, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. I like the nuance there because what the disciples get is that the, the feeding of widows was vastly important, but it wasn't their job because the whole church needs to be involved. The apostles understood they couldn't do it all. They had to spread out ownership of the church to the rest of the church. So the solution, first of all, was focused leadership. But the second thing that we noticed from the text today, focused leadership, but the solution also was through expanded ownership. The solution was by expanding ownership. The apostles don't solve the problem for the whole church. They don't add another thing to their own plates. And this is genius. Rather than piling something on, spread out the work. They involved others. Look at verse 3. Brothers, they say to the whole church, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. The disciples, the apostles did not say, hey, listen, we've chosen these seven for you. Listen to them. That's not what they said. They didn't say, we're holding open auditions for the role of deacon. Anyone who would like to apply for the job should come to us and we will select. No, that's not what they did. They said, you choose seven men. Now, the the apostles did provide parameters. They said, first of all, they must be full of the Holy Spirit. They have to be men, leaders, whose lives have demonstrated their devoted followers of Jesus. This is not a general election. This is not a popularity contest. They have to be filled and controlled by the Spirit. People who are controlled by the Spirit. It's a qualification. The second thing they say is full of wisdom. A life yielded to God's Spirit is evident to all. It's kind of like the apostles saying, listen, don't put dumb people in charge, you know? You know dumb people. They're they're everywhere. Don't put them in charge. People who are wise, who have a track record of serving wisely, put them in charge. You see, the apostles expanded ownership. Verse 4, we empower you. Look what they said. We turn this responsibility over them and we give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. We will do that. We empower you to figure this out. Here's the parameters. God's called you to do this. He's called us to the word. Uh, Pastor Jeff has been putting this in pictures for me recently. One of the great things that Pastor Jeff does is that Jeff has a really, a really great way of thinking systematically about ministry, about thinking organizationally. And, uh, and I love Jeff because he compliments my weaknesses. And he's been reminding me of three circles of ministry that I think fit well here in this passage because this is what the apostles were doing. If you think about the three circles of ministry, we have these three. We have, first of all, we have the doctrine or the mission. There's one group of people in a church who sets, establishes the doctrine, who set out the mission of the church, provide overall direction. Then there's another circle of strategy. People are saying, okay, how do we accomplish the mission together? That's a strategy aspect. And the last circle is the implementation. Who are the people going to implement the strategy to accomplish the mission? Someone figures out, someone sets the direction, someone figures out how to do it, someone does it. Now, when we, when we think about cer- healthy circles in a church, it looks like this. There's kind of a Venn diagram here where w- this idea of doctrine or mission overlaps a little bit with strategy and implementation. There are people involved in all of those. 
It's a healthy circle. Healthy three circles. And so, but there, there's also an unhealthy approach to this, these three circles. Look at this diagram. I, I'm trying to put this in pictures for you. Uh, I call this the, stream, the streamliner. Uh, this, is, this is the dictator. This is one group, and, and doctrine and strategy would really overlap in this picture completely, um, who sets the, the mission and the strategy and then tells everyone else, just do it. Uh, this is tempting for me sometimes as a, as a pastor of the church because I want to go, oh, we need to get this done and here's how we got to do it. All right, you guys, go do it. And tell me how it goes. I got some other things I got to be doing. And I forget sometimes that, you know, we, a healthy three circles overlap. It's not just me. Say, I mean, that's a temptation of any leader. Just tell me what to do. Some people want that. Some people like this model. Hey, I don't want to think about how. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. I'll feel good about myself and I'll go home. That's the streamliner or, dic- streamliner or dictator model. Now there's another model that I think is interesting. It's this one. This is what I call and what our elders in the past have called leadership out of control. Our elders say, here's the mission. You go figure out what we're doing and how we're doing it. Let us know how that goes. And one of the things that we have re- recognized as a group of elders is that th- this isn't necessarily a healthy way to do things. We need to be involved and actively participating. We can't just say to someone, hey, you go do ministry. Let us know how it goes. But we need to be more actively involved. In, the, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles gave them parameters. They were actively involved with people developing that strategy without doing it all. There's another way that sometimes these three circles work together. I like to, to, I like to call this one uh, the headless chicken, so to speak. Like, or maybe, you know, the, the bodiless chicken. Maybe that's a better way to think about it. Uh, the idea here is that you got one group of people doing it all. So all of your mission, all of the strategy, all of the implementation gets surrounded in one group of people. And this is how we create burnout. This is how we struggle and we fight and we're like, why don't, this is the group of people that sit in the involvement and leadership of the church and looks around and goes, where's everybody else? You know, we have 90% of people doing, you know, or 10% of the people doing 90% of the work or 80, 20, you hear those numbers thrown around. It, it, It gets very frustrating because one group of people is doing it all. The apostles avoided this. They avoided it. They said, listen, this is not healthy. And there's the, the one I call the democratic. Uh, this is somebody else does it all and you meet my needs because I voted you into leadership. So, and if you don't meet all my needs, I will go find another church that does meet all my needs. And that's sort of like the, de- we, we, we view our pastors and our leaders the way we view our politicians. I voted you in, you do the work. Let me know how that goes and I'll let you know when you don't meet my needs. All of these are unhealthy ways of looking at the three circles. But if we go to healthy, a healthy view of this again is those three circles. It's that very first picture I had up there, Laura, of the, of the three. <laughs> there you go, thanks. That's the healthy picture where, where our leaders are actively saying, we can't do it all, but we want to be involved in handing it off, involved in pulling people in. Pastor Jeff's constantly talking about pulling these three circles apart and evolving everyone at Waukee Community Church in the works of ministry. Uh, May 5th, Faith in Action Sunday, that's a big implementation day. That's the big I. We got all of us going out together and implementing it. 
leaders. But you know what? I also love what's happening is a strategy piece. Like we have a team of people that have said, we're going to develop a, a, a clear strategy for this. I love that this team has gotten together. And we have our elders saying, hey, go do it because that's part of making followers of Jesus. It's really good when these circles overlap. Um, so we've been talking about increasing ownership. You know, recently uh, I've been talking with Brian and Steph Collins about uh, of increasing and figuring out how to do a great middle school ministry that we're going to be starting here late summer, early fall. And uh, I'm super excited about that. And I'm excited about parents who have stepped up to me and said, Dave, we want to help with that. That's cool. That's ownership. Uh, the Faith in Action team, Global Missions team, like Thomas is leading a group of people that he just told me that they need to get together again. But uh, the, the group of people say, we're going to help provide strategy for this overall cause. The vision team right now is meeting to say, we want to help develop this strategy for the overall church. There's just, I've got so many things that are happening right now, and I'm watching these three circles stretch out. It's Acts chapter 6. It's really cool. Because we as a church are aspiring to be more than we are. And I love that. We want to be owners, not renters. I had a chance to go to Hawaii a couple of years ago, and some of you, I've told this story before, but we rented a car on Hawaii, and uh, we decided, Clarissa and I, one day that we were going to take this car and drive around the entire island. And uh, what I failed to notice is we got about three hours into our trip on the complete other side of the island, and I failed to notice this little part on the rental car map that said, driving down this road voids your warranty <laughs> or <laughs> voids whatever coverage you have in your car. I just failed to notice that. So we're like three, four hours into this trip going around this island. And all of a sudden the road turns to gravel and then it turns to mud. And then it's like, I'm driving this car through things that it's not meant to drive through. And, but I'm too stubborn to turn around and go back, you know? And so all of a sudden we get to this spot where a stream is flowing over the road. And I have a choice to make. <laughs> Am I going to turn around and drive four hours back or go across this stream and drive the hour home to back to our hotel? And so you know what I did. <laughs> I hit the accelerator and I gunned it through that thing and I thought, oh well, it's not my car, right? <laughs> right? It's not my car. Contrast that to my very first car that I had when I was 16 years old. I mean, I, I worked, I got a job at Hy-Vee making four something an hour, you know, bagging groceries to pay for this car. Two fifty nine fifty nine was my payment every month. I still remember it. Burned into my head how painful that was. But I had this car, and I'm telling you, every Saturday I would get out before work, get up, and I would clean that car. I would wax it multiple times a year. I'd pop the hood and, and clean the parts of the engine with armor all just to make it, just in case someone would ever lift up the hood, right? So they could see how cool my car was. I had ownership of the car. It's very different than renting. This is what it is. A church is what we're trying to do is increase ownership so that people aren't just renting church, they're owning it. And I'm watching it happen all over. It's so cool. It's so Acts chapter 6. It's so encouraging. It's a place, where this is a place that's fostering this. People are buying into it. Relationships are the key. Serving is important. People have bought into this and said, how can I help do this? Look what happened next, verse 5. This proposal that the apostles took to the church 
pleased the whole group. <laughs> the first and only unanimous vote in the history of the church, right? That pleased the whole group. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. We learn about these two guys a little later on. And then this whole list of names that I made Nate read that I'm not going to try to do. What's interesting here is that these are all Greek names. Isn't that cool? That's so unique. So these were all people who had some influence, some drink, some history being a Jew in a foreign country. They got it. It's interesting that the, that the people didn't chose, choose equal representation. They didn't have three Hebraics and three, Jew, three, three Grecian Jews and Joe Biden to throw the, you know, tiebreaker vote. Like, they didn't have this. They had all men with Grecian names. That's so fascinating because sometimes it's not about having your rights represented. Sometimes the way of the cross says, I will give up my rights for somebody else. I will submit to others for their gain, even if that means my loss. Isn't it beautiful? The church was in agreement. God did that, by the way, because a few verses earlier, we don't see that happening. God did that. See, the solution came through focused leadership and expanded ownership, but it also came through mutual submission. This is what is really neat. The proposal pleased everybody. They chose these men Verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The whole church practiced mutual submission. They lived out what Paul would later say in Philippians 2, consider others as more important than yourselves. Think about the different groups here that submitted willingly to each other. The Hebraic Jews submitted to the Grecian Jews by selecting men with Greek names. They've been left out. The apostles submitted to the whole church by saying, you choose. The whole church submitted to the apostles by presenting these men for their affirmation. See, in verse 6, they set aside their rights. They elevated each other. It was beautiful. Mutual submission is the natural result of the circles of ownership pulling themselves, stretching themselves out. And there's some beautiful things about mutual submission and ownership like this. When we see this happening, it does a couple things. First of all, First of all, it helps us because it prevents silo ministries. Uh, I like the, the word silo ministry because what, what this picture is is a silo standing all by itself out in the middle of a field. One farmer, I can do this by myself. When I was in uh, my last church, I was one of five full-time ministers at the church. And so we all had our different area of ministry. Mine was youth ministry. We had someone doing children's ministry. We had someone doing sort of overall assimilation ministry. We had a guy doing worship ministry. And then we had our, our senior pastor overseeing the whole thing. And what's interesting is we'd sit at staff meetings. And it's very easy to go, well, I don't care about children's ministry. And we'd fight. I remember we'd sometimes fight over volunteers. <laughs> you know, like, hey, that's my youth volunteer. You get out of them. You leave them alone. You're going to burn them out. They're mine. We start to think about ministry in terms of me, me only. The churches struggle with that. But mutual submission prevents this because we care about the whole church. When we own a part of the ministry, we should own the whole ministry. Mutual submission prevents what I call timeshare ministries as well. 
Okay, so I, I've never owned a timeshare. I've sat in enough pre- presentations to know that <laughs> that's a scary venture for us. But as I understand it, when you buy a timeshare, you own basically two fifty seconds of a property. You get the right to use it two weeks out of a year. And I know it's way more complicated than that, but most likely in that situation, if you buy 250 seconds of a property and you use that two weeks a year, you will never meet the other people. You'll never meet them. You'll never know your fellow owners. See, mutual submission and ownership don't allow this. We own the church in community. We do it together. Because mutual submission and ownership result in unity. If we care about each other enough to submit to one another, then we're all on the same page. Unity of mission and purpose is demonstrated through action. That's the solution. Now, I got a couple minutes left here. So let me explain the result to you because this gets even more cool. Look what happens. Verse 7. The crisis happens. They propose the solution. Look at verse 7. So the word of God spread a direct reference to what the apostles committed themselves to. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This started with the growth of the church in verse 1. It ends with the growth of the church in verse 7. Because the disciples were committed to the message of the gospel, the message of taking the good news of Jesus. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to do talk about what the apostles were sharing. What was so important about the mission? What was so important about the things the apostles were sharing? Because if we don't get this, we miss the whole purpose of the church. Some of you are thinking, this is, Dave, this sounds great, but there's no way I can live like that. Some of you are thinking, Dave, I don't even get it. Why would somebody live like this? Why would someone submit to someone else? Why would someone grab ownership of something they don't even get paid for? Why would they do that? And let me tell you, this is the message that the apostles taught long ago, which drives this entire text. They taught the simple message that Jesus Christ himself was God. He was God in human form. And he became a human, meaning, he became a human being. He died in our place and he rose from the dead because we were far from God. Because we were far from God. I I remember a while back, someone was sitting in uh, another pastor of mine, a friend of mine, his office, and he was just telling him, you know, uh, sometimes I feel like God's right there, but he's too far for me to reach. You ever feel like that? Like, God's somewhere, I, I know he's there, I just, I can't get him. And I will tell you today what that pastor friend of mine said those years ago, he's that there is a barrier between you and God, and that is sin, and we don't like to talk about it. But that's the barrier. But the good news is that Jesus came, and he died for our sins in our place. I can vividly remember when I was a young man, um, struggling with all this in my room way, way before I knew Clarissa, and I remember being on my knees, on my bed, next to my bed, crying out to God, saying, God, I want to know you, but you feel so far away. And in that 
Because I understood the demands that God had on me, a a holy life, a good life, living right. And I knew it was impossible for me to do that. I tried being good, and I just couldn't do it. And in that moment, my teaching kicked in that I had been trained with from when I was a young man. I was reminded that, Dave, you can never be good enough for God. That's why God came to you and Jesus. I knew a holy God demanded perfection. I felt lost. I was scared. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. That's the whole mission of the church. That's why we do ownership is because we want to bring people who are far from God into connection with God. We want to see his kingdom break through into this world. That's the mission. That's why we own it. That's why we invest in it. When Jesus died, he pleased God on my behalf. Don't you love that? That's the good news. God wants you, who are the church, to bring this message to those around you. And this is why we own ministry together. This is why we do what the early church did. We own it because we're passionate about it, because we understand we get to have a place in the redemption, the redemptive history of the world. We get to be part of that. So today, if you are part of this community of people who have been forgiven by Christ and know Jesus, I implore you, own in this ministry. Keep it up. If you don't know Christ, if you're far from him, I implore you today, repent and find forgiveness in Christ and who he is. Would you pray with me as we close? God, thanks for today. Thanks for the privilege of having my son dedicated to you, of, of holding him up and saying, one day I want him to understand this forgiveness of, in Christ. I want him to be an owner in the church. It's my same prayer for Malachi, for Simon. It's my same prayer as I pray for our whole church and everyone here today. God, for those who are far, stir in their hearts and draw them near. For those of us who know you intimately, Lord, help us to own the ministry of the church. It is a privilege and a joy. Empower us this week to live fully because of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.